This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to another special panel edition of The Bunker. Once a month we step back from the Daily Explainers and we get some Bunker regulars together to discuss broader matters, bigger themes, sometimes stranger things. This time, sleaze, political sleaze, corruption, backhanders and sexual indiscretion are often what sinks governments and in Britain and America we sometimes think we become desensitised to dirty dealings. What makes sleaze real sleaze and how is it different around the world? Plus, the British Museum has been rocked by a spate of thefts going back to 2021. Should we be taking this opportunity to take another look at the ethics of museums? And we'll have a few reading tips at the end of the show in the Bunker Reading Group. So let's say hello to the panel. Seth Tavo is a regular on Oh God, What Now in the Bunker and the author of Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London Private Members Clubs. Welcome Behind Closed Doors in the Bunker. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Okay. Yes, alive and well. Jolly good. Seth, I think I saw a picture of you photographed at the India Club, the much-loved restaurant in London that's closing after more than 70 years. What's the story here? It is you, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's right. I'm, I've been a regular there for about 20 years since I was a student at King's next door. It started out actually as a place for people who work for the Indian High Commission shortly after mm -hmm. independence to go to and really a sort of centre for the Indian community in Britain. Uh, now they've had their property developer who's really been in a long-term dispute with them. This is Marston Properties. They originally applied to have the whole building demolished. That's been repeatedly refused. Mm -hmm. They're now having it done up so that they're going to gut out everything and uh, turn it into a luxury hotel because if there's one thing London doesn't have enough of its luxury Well, hotels. we're absolutely stuck for them, aren't we? What's going to happen to the India Club? Is, it, is that that game over for the India Club? They're being forced out unless they can find a new home. Right. It's okay. It's grim. And answers on an email. Um, Kasia Tomasevich produces countless bunker podcasts, but not for long, sadly, because she's <laughs> going to be leaving us to return to academia. It is a tragedy Sorry. for us. Hi, Kasia. <laughs> Hello. So um, the bank holiday weekend is coming up. You are a an historian. Yes. Tell us how we got bank holidays. There's so, a tale, isn't there? <laughs> so you know that I love bank holidays. I think that there's just something really beautiful about anything that disrupts the everyday rhythms of like the nine to five life. Um, we could go back to pagan times. We could go back to the early days of mm. agriculture. 
But I'm going to take us back to 1871 when Sir John Lubbock introduced the Bank Holidays Act. And this was mainly because other industries are entitled to public holidays, but banks, because of the way that the economic banking system worked at the time, weren't allowed holidays in the same way. Who will think of the bankers? Well, exactly. So the story is, is that Lubbock, who was a banker turned politician, introduced bank holidays. So maybe it's not all hashtag bad bankers. Maybe some of them. Yeah, I mean, it's probably <laughs> the last good thing they did for yeah, us. probably. I, su- I suppose. <laughs> I hate to bust in, but uh, his great-great-grandson, also called John Lubbock, is a good mate of mine. So, John, if you're listening, thanks. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> thanks, yes. Hi, John. What the family's done for us. Completing the panel is the host of Bunker Global and author of Africa is Not a Country, Deepo Falloyan. Hi, Deepo. How are you doing? Not bad, not bad. So, um, Beyonce, she's in the middle of her ongoing Renaissance tour and she's getting stick because her so-called world tour doesn't actually include any African countries Mm -hmm. at all. Africa is, last I looked, it's part of the world. It is part of the world. Um, Last time I looked as well and last time I went, Mm. it was very much there. Uh, This is such a pet peeve of mine uh, it's one thing not to kind of turn up at all it's another thing to kind of pretend as if you are traveling the world without mm. uh actually ignoring this giant land of 1.4 billion people um, yes. who are very much you know huge beyonce fans and are contributing to her uh, sales around the world many people from cross continent are having to travel um to europe and north america to go and yeah. see beyonce and it would be a lot easier for them if they didn't have to to spend all that money there must be acts that the sort of global acts that make a point of including Africa and African countries as, on their itinerary. I know that bizarrely as it is, I know that UB40 used to do lots of African shows because while in Britain they might be sort of considered a bit sort of slightly kind of middle of the road, mm. maybe kind of decaffeinated reggae around the world, it's like they're considered to be absolute dons. Yeah. It's always really, really well respected when it when it does happen. A lot of artists tend to kind of stop over in South Africa. And so, you know, for a lot of other African countries, they're kind of saying that's not enough for us. It's quite a yeah. big place. So just saying, you know, I'm going to South Africa for a couple of days doesn't quite uh, yeah. help a lot of other people from across the continent. Who should be doing African countries that isn't? Who's got audiences out there that they ought to be serving? I mean, you can sort of go across all genres and you'll find that there is an audience certainly across the continent for artists and I think that is you know at the moment there's a lot of kind of relationships between Afrobeat artists and and hip-hop artists especially in the US and a lot of Afrobeat artists are currently uh, traveling the world and they'd love to see that reciprocated back on the continent. If it ever gets passed through Parliament, the online safety bill could see secure communication platforms like WhatsApp and Signal disappearing from the market. The government seems to be signing the death warrant of the very platforms they themselves use to conduct all their backstage politics on. And with there's no secret communication, then there's no scandal. We've had a huge spread of them in British politics lately, from the epidemics of sexual scandal in the House to Owen Patterson's lobbying to Boris Johnson's full deck of loans and rule breaking. Are we seeing a shift in the world of sleaze? Is sleaze changing and becoming a different kind of thing? Seth, you're a historian of political scandals. Uh, We've recently been plagued by them, but people seem to care less and less as if we've been kind of beaten onto the ropes to accept it. Has there ever been a time of worse sleaze than we've got at the moment? Probably not, um, or at least not that's of so much interest in public scrutiny. Um, I think part of this is is that you know, I was growing up in the 1990s, and that was a boom time of its own for scandal. A fantastic time to find out about all manner of sexual practices just by watching news and seeing what Tory MPs were doing. But um, what underpinned that a lot was there was a, a far more intrusive press than we have today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's well, that was quite an interesting era because this was pre-Leveson. There was an awful lot of we have been covertly filming inside an MP's home 
home or hotel room and stuff that frankly would be treated as illegal now. It probably was illegal then, but they got away with it. Um, that followed decades, if not centuries, of deference. Um, and so that was a sort of narrow window of greater exposure. Now there is, I would say, a more guarded press in some ways. Mm. Um, and so we're, we're finding out things more quickly. But at the same time, there are often stories that we won't run with. Yeah. Is there a, a particular British flavour of scandal, one that we're prone to? I mean, is it evolving? I mean, there used to be a cliche that uh, Tory scandals were about sex and Labour scandals were about money. I think there's a kernel of truth in that because it's whatever you've been deprived of, then once you're in office, <laughs> you tend to go all out on. Um, there's certainly, I think, an element of repression just in the British character. And so yeah. as a result, in our scandals having that. And a lot of this comes down to surviving a scandal and whether you can own it. If you look at people, for example, like the Trumpians or indeed the Johnsonians who just don't resign anymore, no one resigns anymore, they just sort of say, yeah, I did that, so what, who cares? It's very often the case that hypocrisy will get you, the lie will get you. Uh, if you deny something and then are then found to have lied as opposed to just saying, yeah, fine, that's it, end of story. Yeah, I mean, I seem to remember that you know, one chancellor resigned, I think, in the 1950s or 1960s for accidentally briefing a minor element of the budget about half an hour before the budget was due to be delivered. And that was considered to be a resigning matter. And now that's like Tuesday. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that was in 1947. And mm. the, the government today doesn't just brief one or two bits of the budget. It leaks the whole budget yes. days beforehand. Um I think the, the pace of these things is certainly much bigger. I mean, it used to be the matter that you know, we talk about Profumo and that rocking society mm. in the 1960s. But you might have gotten one scandal every two years. Now it's more like two a week, yeah. sometimes more. Yeah. If it's possible to have a sort of a, you know, a handful of favourites, what, what are the kind of turning point ones for Britain for you, your favourite ones? I quite like the Lord Lambton case from the early 70s, which no one seems to ever remember, but it was a great one. Um, you had a vice ring that was being busted by the police, and uh, there was a leak saying, uh, you've got to look into the Jellicoe connections. No one knew what the Jellicoe connection was. Actually, it was just that there was a brothel in a block of flats called Jellicoe House. But that's not what the press thought. They thought, oh, I know, the uh, defence minister is called the Earl of Jellicoe. Let's go and ring him up and ask him if he's ever upset with a prostitute. And they did so. <laughs> and uh, he says, Icebreaker. yeah. Icebreaker. <laughs> oh, right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, let, let's go and ask some other defence ministers then. So he, so he said yes. He yes. said, yeah, fine. Yeah, that's the story. Yeah. And, and wow. they said, oh, well, let, let's try some of the other defence ministers. And well, one of them was uh, Lord Lambton. And, uh, you know, the suggestion was that they'd been taking drugs with the prostitutes. He says, have you ever slept with a prostitute? Yes. Have you ever taken drugs before? And he gives this wonderful meandering answer along the lines of, um, well, you must understand that uh, going on holiday with a few close friends to Marrakesh for a month is a very different <laughs> enterprise to <laughs> shooting up on the Strand. <laughs> I, I feel we're losing people of this calibre from our, yeah. our political culture. Do you think that politics attracts people with a kind of sort of moral death wish? They almost want to get caught. It's the, uh, it's the you know, the Clapham Common moment. I think it's very true that politics attracts risk takers. I mean, no one ever went into politics to get rich. You might get people corrupted, but they, they don't actually go into – you could make a lot more money as a banker, for example. Um, and it attracts chances and risk takers. And you find that in terms of risky sexual behaviours. You find that in terms of risky investments. I mean, these are people who don't take risk in the way that normal people yes. do. Deepo, I mean, you've covered 
you know, politics across the world. Mm. Does tolerance for this kind of scandal vary from country to country? I mean, there's a the cliche that the French are very relaxed about sex. Yeah, I think the, the main differences come in sort of cultural scandals. So mm. sex, drugs, what your politician was up to when they were 16 to 18. Um, but there is a lot of sort of uniform acceptance that corruption is bad and stealing public funds is bad. You have some countries, um, Nigeria for one, uh, who are so used to politicians sort of dipping into public funds that should a politician take, let's say, sort of 5% and not 50%, then, you know, people might say, ah, it's not that bad. <laughs> right. You know, maybe can, you know, we, we can have a little chat with him and he can calm down a little bit. But uh, generally speaking, I think kind of corruption and the unwillingness to sort of hide the sort of scandals that you and your family might be a part of tend to be quite universal and translatable. Yeah. And sort of Western political cultures tend to have a thing about, about nepotism. And mm. there is the kind of, there's the cliche that nepotism is more, um, you know, across the across the Middle East, across Africa, across South America, that they, this is more of an issue. Mm. And it, that sort of scandal doesn't attach itself. Does that does that apply in your experience? Yeah, generally speaking, I think it, interesting enough, kind of I, in sort of covering a lot of countries. I think I think countries that have historically had monarchies mm. are a lot more comfortable with the idea of nepotism. So you know, in this country, we're, we're very used to the idea that um, you know groups of friends and their family members, and you know where you went to school, that can have an impact on your sort of future prospects of ruling the country. Other countries that sort of aren't as comfortable with that idea uh, very much put nepotism very high. Um, on the on the sort of scandal radar, we've seen huge financial scandals, particularly over medical equipment during the pandemic, and they're like notoriously hard to get to the bottom of. Like the Michelle Mon affair, she recommended her own family business to the taxpayer, got two hundred million pounds of government contracts, made a hundred million pounds profit from the deal, and yet may not have broken the law. It seems highly likely that she hasn't. Do you think we might have to face the fact that lots of scandalous behaviour actually isn't illegal? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know. I, Fundamentally, I guess the difference between a scandal and criminality is that sort of scandals require the public to do something about it. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone commits a crime, there are mechanisms already in place to deal with that. Whereas when it's a scandal, you need the public to be able to do something um, or you need the politician in question to feel some sense of shame. Um, and that is something that's very much going out of the norm amongst a lot of politicians. So that's the thing that can be incredibly frustrating. You need some kind of will amongst you and your fellow citizens to uh, push back against what might not be criminal action, but certainly you have to decide whether that's acceptable or not. And that can be frustrating amongst countries in which they feel that there aren't enough of those mechanisms, whether it's through recall elections, uh, whatever it might be. You know, here in the UK, we're seeing laws being passed that's making it harder to go out and protest, for example. You know, those are the sort of things that are able to punish scandals that don't quite rise to criminal action. Seth, you can't really mention the concept of scandal without talking about Trump, but Trump has seemed so absolutely impervious to any kind of reining in and certainly to any personal shaming. Is the notion of scandal itself kind of effectively dead in the United States now that you can always just point to Trump and go, well, look? I'm not sure because although he's um, doing still quite well for the Republican nomination, his poll ratings across the whole population are pretty much tanking right now. Um, what's been so important to Trump sustaining himself up till now has been the element of populism of saying to his supporters, I get away with stuff that you can't do so. And you can live vicariously through me as a former reality TV star, and I'm doing this for you guys. And so there's been this element of people who condemn certain kinds of behavior, but they say, yeah, it's great that Trump does it because uh, he's, he's one of us. Yeah. And yet you seldom see anybody 
I mean, we haven't had a classic, you know, homophobic Republican senator caught out with a young advisor, young male advisor in a long time. It used to be a staple in the 1980s. But we've yet to see somebody pop up and go, how can you say this of me when you let Trump get away with so much? You know, George Santos, for instance, is a, 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 a man mired in scandal and has not played the literal Trump card and said, look what you're letting the other guy get away with. No, in fact, quite far from it. One of the things that um, Santos has embraced has been his homosexuality and saying, yeah. I'm not a conventional Republican. You can't put me in a box. Yes, I do have very right-wing views. I think part of it, in, in the case of uh, US congressmen, and I'm thinking of one particular United States senator who shall remain nameless, but uh, I think rent boys are more discreet in Washington, D.C. these days. Lord. <laughs> I mean. But the, the point I, I do want to make is that um, the Republican Party has embraced libertarianism to a very great extent. And this is a way for them to say, we don't moralise anymore, mm. actually. We are fine with this. And... What's so uneasy is that they do that whilst also saying, by the way, the religious right has nowhere else to go, so you should still keep supporting us. Yeah. I mean, it makes you wonder whether the needle of tolerance towards sexual scandal in particular kind of only moves in one direction. You know, to tolerate more of it, you can't dial back. You can't turn around and say, well, this was fine during the last presidential term, but we've decided that now for the next guy, we must observe a much stricter yeah, framework. There, there was a really interesting study done in the 70s by an academic called Lord Humphreys who looked at cottaging behaviour in the US in the 1970s. And he uh, came up with this idea of what he called the righteous breastplate. He said that the people who often were most vocal in their moral outrage, Christian values and outrage, uh, particularly at homosexuality, were very often those who actually most indulged in themselves. And he came up with a statistic, he said 38% of uh, people who were within this sort of religious outrage movement were on average themselves engaged in this. Very often they, they had an element of dissociative behaviour where they said, well, um, I, I see myself as engaging in homosexual acts, but I'm not a homosexual myself. And I think that's immoral, of course. Yeah, it's astonishing, isn't it? It's like, and it maybe goes back to what we said earlier about the um, you know, risky behaviour and the kind of need to sort of step, step as close to the wire as you possibly can. Um, so over here, we've seen Boris Johnson seemingly get away with almost everything. Although, of course, he's no longer prime minister and no longer an MP, so has he really got away with it? But do you think he might have killed the notion of, of scandal in, in Britain? Because what what not just his party, but also the press were willing to give him a, a pass on? I'd break down the many, many scandals of Boris Johnson because quite a few of the earlier scandals tended to be things involving his private life, where fundamentally it was a matter for him and the two or three other people who were directly involved. And I think we did get quite used to saying, OK, well, it's not really a resigning matter as far as we're concerned. Although, of course, he was forced to quit from the Tory front bench on more than one occasion. Um, where it gets trickier is just the endemic lying over really quite important things like a global pandemic and like the constant acceptance of freebie gifts and the notion that you can be in hock to rich party donors and not care at all about the rules on reporting these things. Um, we have an entire ethics structure that's been put in place over the last 30 years that's basically gone out the window under Johnson, and that's much more serious. Now, museums. They used to tell the world that they were trustworthy repositories of all of our shared heritage and that that stuff would definitely be safe there. Now you can pick up a piece of Roman onyx jewellery worth £50,000 from the British Museum's collections for 51 quid on eBay and you might even get positive feedback. 
some 1,500 items of gold jewellery, semi-precious stones and glass dating from the 15th to the 19th century have gone missing from the museum and a curator has been fired, although there have been no charges and he has to be considered as innocent. The incident has put the argument about repatriating artefacts back in focus. The Greek culture minister, Lina Mendoni, has renewed calls for the Parthenon marbles to be returned to Athens, citing security concerns. Meanwhile, the Horniman Museum in London has already returned the first of its Benin bronzes, and Glasgow's Kelvin Grove Gallery, which has 19 Benin bronzes, says it will return them to their legitimate owners. Are we rethinking museums in the right way? Are we rethinking them fast enough? And are we taking advantage of what technology could do to make sure that cultural artefacts are displayed where they ought to be? Kasia, you're sadly going to be leaving us on the production side here at Podmasters to be a lecturer in museum cultures at Birkbeck. Am I going to discover limited edition Podmasters merch in your local car boot sale? <laughs> There's a reason why I'm the only one in the bunker currently drinking from a bunker mug yeah, and you've all got, oh God, yeah. what now I'm ones? Knocking that one on eBay, <laughs> yes. Um, is it easy to steal from museums? Is this a problem that we didn't know about? I think that if you were in museums, you knew it was a problem. But yeah. anyone outside of museums, I think the problem comes from the fact that outside of museums, you imagine museums to, the, to be this kind of static monolith to the past that isn't in conversation with the world outside it. Now, museums, as you know, uh, cost of living, also fuel prices going up. A lot of the people are underpaid as well. So stealing is obviously something that happens when you have an institution that is filled with massively underpaid people. At the same time, I think lots of people don't understand the processes of the working processes inside museums. So we imagine that they have like navigable archives. You can find all of the stuff really easily. A lot of the archivists themselves don't know what's in the collections yeah. because there's a lot of stuff. There are huge collections that people donate and then every single bit needs to be itemised. There's a massive backlog. How much of a shock were the British Museum theft to the museum world or was it a case of, oh, we all knew this was going to happen sooner or later? I think the thing is, is that really it undermines the very concept of what something like the British Museum is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a universal survey museum, which mm. means that it's, it's supposed to stand as like the emblem to uh, culture, right, to, to civilization. Obviously, that's not necessarily what it always does. It's... It, it, very much presents a particular British view of the world and, and Britain is represented in response to the other. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's, it's sent shockwaves in the sense that it's completely undermined the whole reason why it exists. <laughs> so I mentioned the, um, the Greek culture minister raising again the Parthenon marbles. Mm. The notion of returning artefacts from museums in Britain and the United States to where they were sourced, shall we say, gets bundled into the whole woke round, bundled into into the culture war stuff. What is the kind of direction of travel in the museum world, in the museum community? Are people broadly in agreement that, you know, stuff that was, you know, at best bought, at worst simply stolen and looted should go back to where it came from? So Deepo had his personal bugbear earlier, and this is going to be my personal okay. bugbear. I think often... If when these conversations get bound up with the idea of woke, it kind of positions them as as if they've only existed for a few years. Mm. The repatriation debate grew so prominently in the nineties and has existed in museums really strongly since. And it also kind of positions it as if there are shouty activists and people on social media outside of museums, and then inside of museums there are stuffy curators that don't know anything about the objects but somehow want to retain them. In my experience, 
they know the objects intimately. They know the provenance much better than people on the outside often. I mean, not the communities that are affected, of course, but, you know, like from your average Joe or Josephine on the street. So it really frustrates me that often this is kind of pulled into this woke culture, culture wars thing, because also this is, yeah, personal bugbear. Sorry, going off on a thing that. You know, when we think about the repatriation debate, when we think about what objects are doing in museums, they're there as a way to explain a sense of the past, but also a, a sense of the world, right? Mm. So you can repatriate objects or, and, and that will facilitate a type of knowledge exchange. And I think that's useful to museums and the stories that they can tell. So this idea that, oh, soon there won't be anything left in our museums because they're all going off, you know, they're all yeah. going to be like sent back across the world. Well, personally, I think if they are, right, okay, let's say that did happen, which it wouldn't because only 1% of collections are ever are ever shown, Actually, isn't it much better to be like, now let's open up dialogue. Let's have dialogue. Let's talk about how these objects came to be here, how they've gone back, how we facilitate communities and and knowledge exchange, essentially. Isn't that what they're supposed to be? Like hubs of knowledge. Yeah. Um, Deepo, you cover the um, British Museum's collection of African objects in your book, particularly things like the Benin bronzes. You know, the justification is that world destinations like London and New York and Los Angeles and Berlin and so forth, so forth are world cities, they're world destinations, so the stuff is going to be seen by more people if these items are there. Does that stand up? It doesn't really. Um, and this is an argument that museums have been making for a long time now. Uh, in 2002, they actually released a statement, 18 of the sort of self-described great galleries and museums of the world, so included the Louvre, the British Museum, uh, the Art Institute in Chicago, the Met in New York, released a statement which they called the Declaration of the Importance of Universal Museums, in which they sort of divided their argument down to three basic points. The first point being that, sure, it's bad to steal items, but keeping items isn't as bad because the context for which they were stolen is very different, um, which is obviously insane because uh, theft, the concept of theft hasn't changed. I'll sort of take the restitution argument back to 1871 when uh, then Prime Minister William Gladstone gave an angry speech in Parliament saying it's a real shame to this nation that Robert Napier thought it appropriate to bring back great treasures from Ethiopia, then known as Abyssinia, and what we now call the Magdala treasures, uh, back to the UK. And he said that, you know, he cannot understand why something that means nothing to us um, and means everything to them would have been stolen. And, you know, Robert Napier responded and said, oh, you know, it was was a mistake. You know, we'll we'll get them back um, to Abyssinia very quickly. And in fact, those items are still in the V&A today. Their sort of next argument was that the these items, you know, they've been in these museums for so long now that they're sort of part of our uh, culture. They're part of British culture. Um, and that would come as a shock to the communities in which these items were stolen from in the first place. But as you mentioned, at the heart of their argument is this idea that uh, London, New York, uh, Berlin, uh, these are cultural hubs in which it is incredibly easy for Uh, communities around the world to come and see these items. Now, that in and of itself um, is surprising at a time when, you know, we're seeing immigration policies that are making it even harder for people to come and visit the US and UK and Europe from the very nations that these items were taken from in the first place. So on so many different levels, this basic argument just doesn't hold up anymore. Yeah, I mean, we all know people who have had friends and relatives refused entry, you know, just for tourist visits, for no particular reason at all. Yeah, Just because you come from the wrong place. And like saying, but I'm here for your beautiful museums, doesn't usually cut much ice. No, no. With border force, does it? That isn't a particular reason to come and say, I'd, I'd quite like to see some of the 
90% of Africa's material cultural legacy that's currently being held yeah. outside of the continent doesn't really stuff. work in the, yeah, yeah. I'm just quite like, you've got some of my things. I just want to sort of peep, peep at yeah. them from a, from a safe distance, I promise. So, I mean, we live in a, in a time when make, making facsimiles and making digital representations of artifacts, yeah, this technology is reaching hitherto unimagined heights. You know, you go to the Natural History Museum in London, all those dinosaurs are casts. Mm. You know, so much is a, is a facsimile anyway. It does not seem to detract from the experience. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to detract from the wonder, the educational value, and so forth. I mean, do we know, do any of us around the table, Cash, maybe this is one for you, why museums can be so resistant to simply displaying facsimile stuff while the real thing goes back to its original source? I think it's mainly about cost. I think like printing and facsimiles can be quite expensive. And I think it's also about the, I think it kind of goes back to an idea around the allure of the object, yeah. of the of the true object, you know, that there is something that gets lost somehow in its reproduction, which is obviously nonsense when you think about dinosaurs, <laughs> right? That example is kind of perfect. Yeah. And like I said earlier, this could just really, fi- like really tie back into that idea of knowledge exchange again, like more knowledge in more museums is better, right? Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, Deepo, there's unsurprisingly, I'm trying to think, like, my idea of where the great museums are tend to be across Western countries. I am not aware of kind of, you know, what the, the museum culture of Africa itself might be, for instance, or mm-hmm. African countries. You know, on a rainy Saturday, does like a mom in Lagos drag her kids to the museum for a bit of peace and quiet? Yeah, absolutely. But one of the things that have, have simply made it harder for uh, a lot of museums to fully establish these sort of international reputations is, as I mentioned before, that 90% of our material cultural mm-hmm. legacy was taken during colonialism. The frustrating thing is that, you know, building on this idea of of, of exchange and, and sharing these items wouldn't lead to the complete decimation of, of museums around the world. The Benin Bronzes, for example, the British Museum has about 900 Benin Bronzes. 800 of them are permanently in storage um, and only 100 of them. Well, 800 of them we think are in storage. We think are in storage. We're not sure. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and a lot of the cataloging of these items is is incredibly poor. And so, you know, you have, and, you know, speaking uh, for Nigeria and Lagos in particular, you have a lot of curators and, and historians who are trying their best to, you know, buy back a lot of these items from private collections, from universities, and establish, you know, centers in which. Uh, these can be shown within the country. Um, But that has been something that's been incredibly challenging. That's really frustrating as well, because as soon as they get uh, bought into private collection, they just disappear. So you don't even know where they are. So you're like, oh, great. All of that really rich and important, Mm. you know, material culture of like world civilization Mm. is just gone. (laughs) And we don't know where. Seth, you're also a historian of a different kind. Do we over-fetishize physical objects and perhaps under-emphasize stories and narratives which can be more easily served by a facsimile. You know, history is more than a collection of sort of, you know, busts and canoes and death masks and weaponry. Yes, I think there is a degree of fetishization, but actually source material really matters. Physical objects and what we can tell from them really do matter. Um, What I think is more dangerous is when we don't actually properly contextualise them. Because just saying here is a pretty gaudy thing with some jewels on it doesn't tell you, for example, whether that jewellery was put on display only for one special day of the year as an extraordinary, unusual representation or not. But I I think actually using that as a springboard for exhibiting these things can be fantastic. Hmm. Um, You also write about historical buildings Hmm. and the communities around them. What, what what do you say to Deepo's point that like the 
the buildings themselves, the museums, the British Museum and places like it, they shouldn't be considered just as, as, as cultural artifacts in their own right. That, you know, we don't have to preserve the entire content of the British Museum for the British Museum to be the British Museum. Oh, totally. And I think it's actually really interesting when you look at museums as something that tells you about how objects have been seen themselves. Mm. So, I mean, you mentioned the Horniman Museum earlier. It's eccentric, to put it mildly. Uh, the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford is a real freak show, a Victorian-style yeah. freak show. And actually, the way that that objectifies things, I wouldn't you know, completely retrofitted. I'd say, this is how the Victorians actually viewed stuff. You make an exhibit of the exhibit in its own right. Um, and I completely agree with Kasha's point about how on average about 1% of items are on display. This is a symptom of a wider problem I think we have when we're trying to sort of grapple with difficulties around our past. And that's to say, we'll just shove it into a museum. But a museum isn't a dumping ground. A museum is a rotating, constantly updating exhibition space. And there should be no shame in that. Talking about how things are uh, remade and how ideas of what an exhibition is and how objects are displayed has reminded me of my bugbear, which is the changes to the Imperial War Museum, which I've seen happen in my lifetime. And the key one is that as you were led through the Second World War exhibit, the, the kind of climax of the exhibit was the gigantic swastika eagle at the end of the room. This is it. This is what it was for. This is the kind of... This is the head of the enemy. This is this is why we did all this stuff. And then they redo the exhibition and that incredibly potent thing is now a kind of sideshow elsewhere, hidden down a you know, hidden in a little byway of the of the um of the hall. And it like the narrative is gone and it's been removed and I just it's never been the same for me. You're you're looking askance at me there, Tasha. <laughs> I just don't want to alienate anyone I know from the Imperial War Museum okay, that might have been enough. behind. <laughs> well, they, they redeveloped the Second World War galleries. I think they opened in 2021. So mm. they're now situated. So the Holocaust galleries is above them. So they kind of integrate that story between the Holocaust and the Second World War mm. a bit more. I mean, it's not like um, this kind of moment in the same way, mm. but it's definitely there still. And I think it's still an important story and, and, a, and a really yeah. important exhibit. You've really got to look for it, though. <laughs> From your point of view, Kasia, what do you think the museums of tomorrow will look like? I was having a little think about this. And museums are obviously places of ideology and they reflect the societies that they're in, right? They're living institutions, as I mentioned. So early Victorian museums, like Seth mentioned, kind of were just like cabinet of curiosities almost. And then you get start to get more museums and heritage sites of the everyday in the 1980s as social history comes through. Recently... I'd say like within the last 20, 10, 20 years, you get more museums on social issues. So, for example, the Migration Museum, which is my favourite museum in Lewisham Shopping Centre, is all about how different waves of migration have completely transformed Britain. Uh, but you also, I think, get more that are on climate change, for example. So at the moment, we're kind of living in the museum of social change era, I guess. So the museums of the future, I I don't know, but as a sci-fi fan, I wonder if maybe they'll be about how we live side by side by our alien, yes. <laughs> by our alien pals. The, the museum of past human civilization. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level 
today. That's shopify.com slash system. We're coming to the end of the podcast, and we're going to finish up by raising the cultural tone of the show with the Bunker Reading Group. What reads will the panel recommend? Fiction, nonfiction, biographical, historical, whatever you like. Deepa, I'm going to come see you first. What should people be reading? Uh, well, I'm currently reading uh, Ordinary Human Failings, which is a novel by Megan Nolan. It's her second book. Uh, her first was Acts of Desperation. Um, and Ordinary Human Failings is about this uh, Irish family back in the 1990s who leave their town. There's some scandal around, you know, pregnant teenage daughter, and they move to a new town, and they sort of try and keep to themselves. But a crime is committed. And the people of the town kind of look at this sort of recluse family and they, they suspicion is thrown their way. Um, and it, it hits a lot of sort of classic points of a great sort of uh, crime thriller, a journalist who's on the, on the search for the truth. Um, but it, it has a lot of kind of warmth and uh, so many really lovely moments. And uh, I highly recommend it. Give us a title again so the listeners don't have to press a rewind button. <laughs> uh, it's called Ordinary Human Failings by Megan Nolan. Fantastic. Seth, how about you? I've been reading a wonderful biography of James Gilray, the artist, really the granddaddy of political satire. Um, he is the subject of a new book by Tim Clayton in the last year. Lends a lot of insight into the madness that was so much a part of Gilray. I mean, he struggled with his mental health for many years, had numerous suicide attempts, ended up completely mad, and, and um, uh, it was a very, very sad end, actually, to his life. But also bringing out things like the collaborative nature of it. Um, his business partner and personal partner was uh, Hannah Humphrey. She was the one who printed most of his prints. Her name appears on everything. Barely talked about, but actually it was a deeply collaborative enterprise between the two of them. So it's a really fascinating story and a beautifully rendered book full of lovely pretty pictures and the woman got written out of it again yes <laughs> Kasia what's your recommended read so if I say the words petty bourgeoisie to you or anyone <laughs> often I see you. I yes. see eyes glaze over because it's it's you know it's a bit of a caricature it's kind of I went to university and I read Karl Marx once mm. of a phrase um, but it's actually been reframed and rescued by the sociologist Dan Evans in A Nation of Shopkeepers The Unstoppable Rise of the petty bourgeoisie, which I'm currently reading, and uh, if you don't if you don't want to read it, then there's a really great write up uh, in the New Statesman by Anusha Kalian. But it's just about how class is still an important factor in terms of how we live our politics. And there's an idea of the new petty bourgeoisie and the older petty bourgeoisie and who that might be, whether they be plumbers or downward graduates. There's a kind of link between these. So. Well, as the, as the son of shopkeepers and an absolute <laughs> scion of the petty bourgeoisie who's now a tiny business owner, uh, I've got, I think the petty bourgeoisie get a terrible rap. And the piece in the New Statesman was great because it was about uh, you know, Dan's talking about, you know, he's gone off to into academia and thinks this is going to be a glittering future and he has to go home and finds out all the people he left behind are absolutely, you know, they, they're plumbers and they're delivery guys and they've got little businesses and they're as happy as happy can be. I know. They're all loaded, having a fantastic <laughs> time, wonderful relationships, no doubt about their lives and having an absolute whale of a time and he is rather miserable, isn't he? Yeah, it's, so, that, it's like that story that we always talk about, about your dad saying that you should 
have been a butcher. That was more of a threat than, a, than, a, than an encouragement. And it's like, now that, now that the listeners can see what I look like on, on the thing, they'll see why I'm, there's no way on earth I'm going to be a butcher. You know, it's like... I can Photoshop play. that. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to try and get him on the bunker so you Great. can hear a little bit more about Dan's ideas. Excellent. Keep, keep, keep an eye out for that. Well, my recommended read, I'm going to lower the tone enormously. Um, it's a collection of Roger Ebert's reviews mm-hmm. and it's called I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie. It's a collection of his bad reviews and I think it's actually out of print now but I go back to it on the shelf every now and again when I want to read a fantastic writer just offloading on terrible, terrible movies. I used to loan this book to young reviewers on magazines to show them how to you know, really put the boot in. <laughs> And it's fantastic. I mean, this review of the Beverly Hillbillies movie in 1993, the movie is an assault on the eyes, the ears, the brain, common sense, and the human desire to be entertained. No matter what they're charging to get in, it's worth more to get out. This is, (laughs) you know, and I I, I can't remember which one, but this sticks in my mind. He said, uh, he was reviewing some forgotten, terrible piece of cinematic dreck. And he said, uh, the first page of my notes says, not very interesting central cast, not sure what this character's doing. The second page of my notes said, Pacing awful, no ideas. The third page of my note said, egg, milk, bread, crisps, butter, <laughs> and laundry. And that's just the best possible uh, bad review you can read. So, I mean, if you can find it, according to Amazon, uh, it's going to run you $35 um, to pick it up. Uh, but it is on Kindle, and um, you will enjoy it an awful lot. And that brings us to the end of this month's Bunker Panel Show. Thank you so much, Seth Tabo. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deepu Falloon. Thank you very much. And thank you, and eventually goodbye to Cash and Thomas Avich. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed listening. We'll be back with another panel show uh, in a month's time. In the meantime, the daily regular bunkers will be back tomorrow and every day of the week. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in supporting us and helping us do more of this, there is, of course, Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You'll get the podcast early without ads. You'll get remarkable mugs and other merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Podmasters Group Editor Andrew Harrison with Dr. Kasia Tomashevich, Deepo Filoyan, and Seth Tebo. It was produced by Chris Jones and Liam Tate, Audio production by me, Robin Lieburn. Our art is from Jim Parrott and social media by Jess Harpin. Our managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. Music is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>